Friends, we're going to learn the Sicha, review the Sicha, Lech Lecha, volume 15. Um, and the Kutei Sicha is volume 15, Lech Lecha 2. Fundamental, deep, powerful Sicha. So I want to give a preface to the Sicha. There's a big discussion in Torah and in Hasidus and in the Rebbe's teachings, the difference between the patriarchs mitzvahs pre-Sinai and our mitzvahs post-Sinai. We know the patriarchs observed all the mitzvahs pre-Sinai. The language is that Abraham did all the mitzvahs, including Ayyad Tafshil and the rabbinic laws. And, and uh, the same thing with the, all the patriarchs and the tribes of Israel and even the Jewish people, the tribe of Levi, perhaps, throughout the whole time in, Ex in Egypt. They did the mitzvahs. And, and then, so the question is, what was accomplished at Sinai? And why is Sinai such a big development and God comes down, thunder, lightning, it's a, it's a huge deal, great revelation, people are dying. God had to revive them every moment. It was old news. They've been keeping Torah for 500 years. So it's explained that there's a huge difference between the mitzvahs pre-Sinai and post-Sinai, which is why the mitzvahs that we do, we don't do because uh, the patriarchs did it. We do it because they were commanded at Sinai. And the difference between them is that the mitzvahs pre-Sinai did not permeate the physicality. It didn't make the physical thing holy. Post-Sinai, they do. For example, tefillin become holy. Yaakov, Jacob did the tefillin with his sticks. They didn't become holy. In fact, it is said that the patriarchs did the mitzvahs in different ways. It's not clear that they did 613 different physical acts. They accessed the 613 energies or channels of mitzvahs. But they did it in um, different ways. It is said that sometimes that Abraham did all the mitzvahs through hospitality, Isaac through digging wells, and Jacob through his sticks with the sheep. So the physical mitzvah was just like an antenna, accessing all the channels, the 613 channels of divine messages that the mitzvahs carry. But they didn't actually touch down into the physical. So the human, even these great giant souls, are still created beings, they're still finite. They're stuck down here. They can't break through the barrier and touch heaven. They can only access it with their physical antenna. And the divine energy that they access is limited. They don't access true divine energy, true infinite energy, because that's in heaven. It's like someone trying to fly to outer space with an airplane. You could fly higher and higher and higher, but you're still going to be connected to gravity. As great as the patriarchs are, created being cannot break through the barrier from heaven to earth. And therefore, their mitzvahs were symbolic in a sense. Their mitzvahs were like antennas accessing the divine messages. Post-Sinai, the mitzvahs are real. It's not symbolic of anything. It's not an antenna accessing energies, which are by definition, if they're energies that human, that, that a created being can relate to, they're a finite energy. No. God said, I want you to put on tefillin, or light a Shabbos candle, or make a bracha, or learn a word of Torah, what have you. And in that mitzvah, you have my will. You have my essence. I know nafshi ksabis yahabis is the acronym for the first word of the Ten Commandments. I know I have taken myself and written them down and given it to you. We need to say in every mitzvah, God put his essence, his whole infinity. There's nothing finite about a mitzvah. It's completely divine. And that divinity, not only is it the highest level, but it actually touches down to the lowest place. The physical tefillin are, are a mitzvah. They're a piece of divinity. And the same thing with every physical act of every mitzvah. It's a whole different level. Can't compare it. You might say pre-Sinai was an aroma. In fact, there's such a language in the Medrash, the mitzvahs of the, of the 
patriarchs were an aroma of the real thing. The story is told about this fellow who owned a bakery. And he was a greedy fellow. And he didn't like the fact that some poor people who couldn't afford to buy the baked goods would stand outside and smell the aroma. And he wanted to start charging them for the aroma. And they said, are you, are you kidding me? What do you care? What do you lose? He said, what do you mean? You're enjoying the aroma of my bakery. And you have no right because you're not buying the stuff. And he schlepped them to the rabbinic court, to the Besden. And the rabbi looked at this greedy fellow and he said, you know what? You have a point. You're right. They, are, they, they should pay. They should pay. They stand outside your store. They smell the aroma. They should pay. And he orders them to bring some money and they bring a little bag of money. And then he says to the Nebuch, to the poor guy, all right, you got to pay this, this guy. Take the, the bag of money bag and jingle the coins as payment. And he's making the idiot realize that the same way you can't ask for an aroma. Because somebody took an aroma and they took nothing from you. They'll pay you back with the jingle. They gave you nothing. And that's perhaps analogous of what the mitzvahs were before signing. They were a reflection of divine energy, divine light. It didn't have the infinity because no creation, no nivra, the language is, no human, no creation, even a giant soul, the patriarchs and matrix can access infinity. Because by definition, everything is finite except God himself. So they jingled. They heard the divine messages. They accessed the divine channels. They elevated in their, in their airplane, aircraft higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. But they couldn't break out of the atmosphere. <laughs> they couldn't go beyond the limitation. At Sinai, God gave us a rocket ship. And uh, we access true infinity, no limitations. We're not hearing the jingle. We're not hearing the channels. We're not smelling the aroma of divinity. We're touching God with every mitzvah. Clearly, the mitzvahs post-Sinai are in a whole different quality. The difference is, is, is infinite. Just like the difference between money in the bank and the jingle of money. Based on this, there's a whole discussion in Hasidus. What's more important, the act of the mitzvah or the feelings, the kavana? And many people argue, well, if you do a mitzvah, you don't have any feelings, it's nothing. Conversely, others say, what do you mean? Who cares about the feelings? Just do it. What's the value? And some people say, well, if you just took a lulav and you shook the lulav with some stranger in the street and they didn't understand what they're doing and they didn't have a feeling, well, how is that meaningful? And it goes back and forth. And I've often had people say to me, Rabbi, I don't like to light Shabbos candles. I dance for God. That's how I light my candles. How do you respond to that? I once said to a woman quite cynically in my younger years, a woman who insisted that she lights her candles in her heart. I said, you got to light a candle. Stop with this heart. No, Rabbi, I light a candle in my heart. So I couldn't resist. And I, and I said, uh, I, I hope you, you don't get heartburn. But the reality is that we know that mitzvahs need to be done physically. And yet there's also emphasis about kavanah and feeling. So which is paramount? So the answer is pre-Sinai, feelings are paramount. Post-Sinai, action is paramount. Pre-Sinai, it's all about feelings. The physical act was merely an antenna to access. The physical act that the patriarchs did with the digging of wells or sticks or whatever else that they did were just merely expressions of a spiritual experience. The example that Rabbi Yael Khan al-Bashalom gives, I'm not sure if it's from the Rebbe, but this is, a, I learned it from him, that, you know, if somebody is happy, 
they dance and they smile. No one's going to give you a command to smile. That's just an expression of feelings that are happening on, on the inside. And that's why pre-Sinai, it's all about the joy. It's not about the smile. It's not about the physical act. Whereas post-Sinai it is. I'm, I'm going to give you another example that I'm suggesting, which makes it very clear, the difference between the two types of mitzvahs. Pre-Sinai, the mitzvahs are like music or art. Their value is in as much as they are appreciated. Post-Sinai, it's like food and medicine. doesn't matter how much you appreciate it. Pop the pill, it can save your life. You can have no kavana. It can be done against your will, it can save your life. Pre-Sinai, music and art. If I walk into an art gallery and I'm blind, or I walk into a concert and I'm deaf, we don't have appreciation for what's going on. Nothing really happened to me because it's all about the person's subjective appreciation, how much they integrate it into their mind and heart and how much they appreciate. They're not getting anything real. They're getting a jingle. They're getting an aroma. Music and art is all about the, in the eyes of the beholder, the experience that they beget. And that's how... You might say the mitzvahs of the patriarchs were God's music and art. They related to it. They, they excelled in it. They went higher and higher. But they didn't quite get the maestro himself. They heard the music, which was the only thing available at the time. Post-Sinai, God says, take this pill. It'll save your life. Just do this mitzvah. Just study this word of Torah. I don't care if you feel it or you don't feel it. Just do it. As, as Nike famously said, just do it. But what's the mean? What do you mean? This is it. This is if somebody needs the medication or someone needs to eat because they're very hungry and they even and they're so weak that they don't even want to eat anymore. We feed them intravenously. It's not about how you feel. It's not about your excitement and your and your kavana, your feelings. It's it's a real thing. And that's what happened. Post Sinai. So the two mitzvahs are a whole different categories, each in and of itself. And it's illustrated also in another difference between them. Pre-Sinai, being that it's all about the music and the art, it's all about the feelings. I can do a mitzvah, even if it's not real, if I had the right intention, it counts. The example is Abraham entertained the angels, considered a huge mitzvah that he was hospitable to them. In truth, they weren't human beings. So he didn't do anything good. He didn't help anybody. So how does it count? And it's a merit of that mitzvah that God gave him tremendous blessings. He was wasting his time. And the answer is because pre-Sinai, it's not about real. It's about music. It's about the experience. Abraham experienced the experience of love and kindness and hospitality. And that was the closest thing you can get at that time to touching God. Does it matter that it's an actual hospitality or not? It makes no difference. Because either way, you're not touching the divine pre-Sinai. All you're doing is elevating the creation, you, to the highest, to refine yourself more and more. It's more called zichuch, the refinement of the tachton of the, of, of the person, of the soul involved in the mitzvah. And they had that on the highest level. He was, he was experiencing hospitality and kindness on the highest level. The bottom line, whether or not he was actually doing Hospitality really doesn't really matter. Conversely, post-Sinai, it's the opposite. If a person loses money and the other poor person finds the money and buys bread and nourishes himself, 
the person who lost it gets a mitzvah of tzedakah because the bottom line, the mitzvah took place. And why? Because this is food and medicine. This is real. This is not a reflection of anything. And how did this all change? It changed because on Sinai, God actually came down. And this is not a mitzvah done with the power of of a person, of even a giant soul like the patriarchs. This is God saying, this is how I would like to be manifest. And God has no limitation. God can come down right on earth. In your tiny mezuzah, you have the whole infinity of elikos, of divine energy. And therefore, hence the difference between the two mitzvahs. And hence the difference, as the Sikha starts out, quoting Maimonides, we don't do mitzvahs today because the patriarchs said it, we do them because we were commanded by God, and by virtue of being commanded by God, suddenly we broke that barrier. Why would we jingle coins if we can have money in the bank? Why would we listen to divine music? If we can be ingesting divine nourishment. So that's the introduction I want to put out there. There's a cute Hasidic story that I heard from my brother, Rabbi Yossi Paltiel. That one of the great Admoidim, one of the great Rebbes of uh, yesteryear from the uh, non-Chabad Hasidic dynasties, I don't remember which one, the Rebbe had passed on and his son was a young child and he became a successor. I don't want to take a guess, but it was some of the famous ones. I believe it was in the Kutz dynasty. And his son turned out to be a, a gigantic Rebbe and a, a mystic, a miracle worker, an author of great Torah works. But when he sat on the on, on, on the on, took over the mantle of leadership from his his extraordinary father. He was a child, but he took it on. He knew we can do it. So one of the older Hasidim, who was yet you know there for many years, a very accomplished Torah scholar, said to him, "How do you do this? How do you come off to sit on that chair and and be a rebbe? You know, we're six times your age and so learned and so scholarly, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And the kid, Rebbe, who in fact was a true Rebbe, answered him with an analogy. He says, imagine mountain climbers climbing this tall mountain, which has never been mastered before, never been reached. And they keep climbing and they see people who didn't make it, who made it halfway, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, after tremendous effort and all their, their gear and all of their efforts and, and a long time period, they finally reach the, the, the top. And they come onto the mountain. We're here. The first people to, to survive that trek and to make it to the top. And then they see a child running around. A child running around? We're expert mountain climbers and, and we have to train for this, et cetera, et cetera. And here we finally are. And this kid is running around. And they said, how do you come to be here? And he said, well, I was born here. So his way, his way of saying to him, you know, there's some people that are on a different level. Their starting point is a different level. They have a different type of neshama, different type of soul. Similarly, post-Sinai, we were all born there. In a sense, our mitzvahs are infinitely greater than, than Avraham Avinu and Yitzchak and Yaakov because their mitzvahs at the end of the day were limited to the human capacity, the capacity of the greatest human being, the greatest Jew, the greatest soul, perhaps, but it's still finite. And finite from infinite are infinitely removed. And therefore, at the end of the day, it's just jingling the coins. Whereas you and I, a simple Jew, does a mitzvah. How much mitzvah is it? How much divine? Infinite. It's 
So based on this difference, we understand why the mitzvahs pre-Sinai are all about feelings. The actions don't really matter. And the mitzvahs post-Sinai are primarily about action. Hamaisa hua ikar action is paramount. And the intention is not so critical. And in, in most cases, is not binding. Because it's real. Do I need to have kavana when I'm popping a pill? Just pop the pill. Thank you very much. However, we do find, though, there is a much conversation about kavana, about feelings anyway, in our mitzvahs too. There's much discussion in Torah, and let alone in the Talmud and the Chassidus, about kavana. It is said uh, to the extent that if someone does a mitzvah without kavana, it's like a body without a soul. It's lacking vitality. Much is discussed about doing mitzvahs with love of God and fear of God. How does that make sense? If we're popping a pill, if it's real, who cares about the experience? Who cares that while I'm popping the pill, there's music playing in the background? Who cares that while I'm putting money in the bank, I'm also hearing the jingle. It's inconsequential. It's like I took a rocket ship out of space and I'm also gonna take a little jump so that I get it even higher. How could it have any value? You're giving somebody a billion dollars and another nickel. You're giving someone infinity, but he should also have a little bit of the finite experience. What value is finite in the world of infinity? What value is our own experience? And I did that mitzvah, I shook the lulav. You shake a lulav, it's priceless. It's touching God, nothing less. Oh, but I also did it with kavana. How much kavana are you gonna have? You're a human being. Give it a number, five, 10, a hundred, a thousand. If you're a tzaddik, maybe it's a million but it's insignificant compared to infinity. Why is it even important? And yet there's no doubt that Kavana, that the feelings are part of Judaism and we emphasize it, open up the Tanya, let alone Abba, Yira, love of God and fear of God are very much part of our Jewish experience. How do you explain it? So the explanation is given, there's numerous explanations, but one is given which relates to the Sicha. And that is that it's true when you do a mitzvah, you're touching infinity. And you don't need any feelings to improve upon it. Just like when you pop the pill, it doesn't matter the mood that you're in, it'll still do the job. Absolutely true. And that's why action is paramount. Because you're touching the divine. However, what part of you is touching the divine? Just your hands or feet with which you do the mitzvah. But you, your internal workings, your mind and your heart, they're not touching the mitzvah. Why should only your hands touch the infinity? Why shouldn't the mitzvah also affect your mind and heart? And therefore, there is even post-Sinai value. It's not binding, but there is tremendous value to doing a mitzvah with mind and heart, understanding and appreciation and emotional joy. Not because the emotional joy will make the mitzvah more special. The mitzvah can't be improved upon, it's infinity. But so that that perfect infinity doesn't just touch your hands with which you lit the Shabbos licht or made it to fill. But it also integrates your person. You have a mind and heart. A human being isn't just hands. There's a person there. So that the infinity should integrate. We also need feelings, understanding, appreciation, kavana. So in the end, we don't give up on the music and the art, on that which the patriarchs introduced. However, we put it in perspective. And the paramount thing is the action. 
but we also include Kavana, and this way, the infinite light is integrated into us as well. And not just my hands touch God, but so does my mind and my heart. That's my introduction. So what do we do so far? We introduce the two types of mitzvahs. Pre-Sinai, which is finite light, post-Sinai, infinite light, touching God. Pre-Sinai, the, the main thing is the intention, the feelings. Post-Sinai, the main thing is the action. And yet, like we said, music and art versus food and medicine. And yet, post-Sinai too, we want feelings because we want the infinity to also integrate within us. We want our mind and heart to be as close to God as our hands are when we do that mitzvah. Another way of saying what I just said, if you take a step back and you look at the mitzvahs pre-Sinai and post-Sinai, there's an advantage and a disadvantage in each. Pre-Sinai, the disadvantage is it's a finite light. You're not getting God, so to speak. You're not getting the full of the course. You're getting a, a, a little bit, a, 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 a ray, a reflection of divine light that the creation is able to comprehend. However, the plus side of it is you comprehend it. You integrate it. You appreciate it. Post-Sinai, the plus is that you're getting the full truth, the full infinity. The, the minus is that you're not integrating it because you can't integrate infinity. You can't integrate. You can't digest that which is an infinite because we're finite beings. However, the miracle of Torah is that post-Sinai Hashem gave us the whole infinity. And then he said to us, if you do the mitzvah with intention, you're able to also integrate it and somehow on some level experience the infinity. So that even your mind and heart is part of the experience, which brings me right into the sikh. The sikh's question is, why do we need to know about the fact that the patriarchs did mitzvahs pre-Sinai? There's a book and a half talking about the patriarchs, and there's many books in, in, in the commentary, the Gemara, and the Medrash, and Hasidus talks about a tremendous length about the patriarchs, the mitzvahs, the matriarchs, the tribes of Israel. Their mitzvahs are history. They don't come close to our mitzvahs. Why do we even talk about them? Some commentaries say, well, they were a prelude to getting the Torah to what happened to the Jews later. Okay, so they were important to the first generation. But once we got Torah at Sinai, their history. Rebbe asked a similar question about the emphasis about the, the Egyptian exile, which is discussed in great detail in Torah. Why is that needed? Why, how does that help us? And we talk about in great detail about that whole experience. So again, the commentaries say the same answer. Well, the experience of Egypt prepared us to get the Torah at Sinai. Okay, I understand why that story was important to that first generation. So write it in one verse. It was important to that experience of Sinai. But you and I are post-Sinai. We're dealing with a whole different currency. We're dealing with money. We're not dealing with jingles. We're dealing with, with, with food and medicine. We're not dealing with some music and art. We're dealing with real divine infinity in every mitzvah and every word of Torah. Do we need to spend so much time in the Torah and in commentary and in Hasidus discussing the mitzvahs that they did and discussing the experience that our patriarchs had and that the Jewish people had in Egypt as a precursor to Sinai? How does that help us? We're beyond that. We don't need to look back at that. It may have been important, as Rabbi quotes from Ramban for that first generation as a, as a preface 
to them being worthy of being the first generation post-Sinai. But once we got Sinai out of the way, we're done. We were born here. Do we need to know how to climb that mountain? Everything about their mitzvahs and their Torah and their history and their journey seems to be academic. They had a different religion, so to speak. They were busy feeling God and putting up antennas to access divine energy. We're not accessing. We have it. Why would we revisit that? And it's at great length. But the answer is the aforementioned. Being that Hashem wants us to have everything. True post-Sinai, He wants us to really have the divine Kedusha, the real infinite life. Not a reflection of it. Not a limited amount. But he also wants us to have the advantage that they had. He wants it to be integrated. Much as I explained earlier, how we have through doing mitzvahs with feelings, we're able to have both. Hashem wants us to have infinity, but he also wants us to have infinity. He wants it to become integrated in our minds and hearts, similar to the way the patriarchs served Hashem with mind and heart. They appreciate it like someone listening to the music. They were there. Hashem wants us to the best of our ability to be there. But where is there now? There now is with the infinite light. How do you do that? How do you put infinity within finite? How do you put the ocean into a little cup? How do you give the divine infinite light of post-Sinai into the human mind and heart? Says the Rebbe, that every one of us has to repeat the journey of our ancestors. There's a three-step program. Patriarchs, Exodus, Egypt, exile, and then Sinai. And these three steps are necessary, not just for the beginning generation, but for you and I, for every generation, for every individual. And what are the three steps on our personal journey? The first step is each of us, as we grow into Yiddishkeit and we start becoming serious Jews, we should enjoy it. We should appreciate it. We should understand it to the best of our ability. We should model the patriarchs who appreciate it, who enjoyed it. And we are expected to do that, even though that's not the highest level of Judaism. And why not? Because so long as I'm doing mitzvahs because I'm enjoying it, obviously, I haven't graduated to the point where I'm recognizing that this is infinity. It's not about your enjoyment. But first step is enjoy it. Don't skip that step, says the Rebbe. It's a very creative, very explosive you might say, a very original way of thinking that the Rebbe is putting forth here. Don't skip the step. Don't say, we're both Sinai and we're just interested in divinity and forget about yourself. Put yourself aside. No. Hashem wants you. He wants you and I to experience the whole thing. He wants us to be involved and invested and integrated. And part of the reason is because if something is true infinity, it can integrate even into the finite. But the Rebbe says you can't skip steps if you want to do that. If God wants the truth of Torah to be integrated within you and I, the first step is when we approach Judaism, we have to approach it, approach it as you and I, as people, as who we are. And we, by definition, can't just approach it uh, mindlessly. We need to enjoy it. We need to have the feelings. We need to, at times, find ourselves studying Torah uh, just because we enjoy it and find areas in Torah that talk to us, that are meaningful to us. All of these things are, there's a sense of, of, of selfishness in them. There's a sense of limitation in them. I'm learning the Torah that I like. 
I'm doing mitzvahs because they make me feel good. They make me feel fulfilled. It's not the highest level, but it's a necessary step. Because if I do mitzvahs, then that, 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 that better me, that cleanse me. I study Torah that I understand and appreciate. I am slowly refining myself so that in the end of the process, when I eventually get the real thing and I graduate just the personal Judaism, but I get the real Judaism, the post-Sinai, I will able, be able also to feel it and integrate it. So I have to start with the level of Judaism that I appreciate and that I enjoy, that gives me pleasure, that talks to my soul based on whatever I enjoy, based on the source of my soul. Each of us have areas of Torah that talk to us. I have to begin the journey of doing the mitzvahs also with the gishmak, with pleasure. And that is the first step of the three-step process, the patriarch step. Don't try to skip it. Don't just be a zombie and do the mitzvahs. Get into it. Love it. Gravitate to mitzvahs that you like. That's fine. Gravitate to Torah that you love. That's fine. Phase two, the Egyptian exile, which to that generation was putting them into like a furnace, like a kiln to shape them. It was an exile, as the Rebbe says, where men did women's work and vice versa, which means it took them out of their comfort zone and prepared them for a revelation, which is going to be totally otherworldly. It's beyond what they're expecting, beyond anything that's imaginable to them. We too, in our personal service, come to a place of our own Egyptian exile in a positive way, which means that we toil in Torah study, we go beyond our limitations. We toil in mitzvahs, we take on mitzvahs with a firm commitment even when we don't enjoy them. We go through a personal, if you will, avoid us perech, back-breaking labor translation that we go beyond our comfort zone because we're trying to access true infinity, not just that which integrates in us. Infinity doesn't integrate. But this is not about integration. This is not about me appreciating some divine music. This is about me getting Hashem himself. And I get that in step two. And now I'm prepared for my Sinai. Now I'm prepared. I've graduated just an observance and a Torah study that's, I'm going to call it personal, tailor-made to my likings and my experience. And I've gone through my personal Egypt translation. This is a very positive Egypt, which is toiling in Torah strong commitment to mitzvahs. I'm going beyond my nature, beyond my custom, beyond my comfort zone, because now I'm recognizing Judaism is not some personal fulfillment. It's truth. It's not music. It's medicine. And then I come to Sinai. And then I get, to, then I become a Jew who's truly connected and I start observing the mitzvahs. But the Rebbe says, because I had that first step, it now comes and revisits me in the final third step. Because I, in the first step, I integrated Yiddishkeit into myself. I didn't skip the phase of self-perfection and refinement or self-development. Then I went beyond it. And then when I embraced the mitzvahs with this newfound exodus, I broke out of any limitations that the human mind and psyche gives, but I've done it albeit with integration into who I am. I've almost now accessed as a finite being, true infinity. How this works, the Rebbe doesn't really explain. It's explained in different places. But this is the, one of the main themes of this sikha. And therefore, the, the, the story of the patriarchs and their observance of mitzvahs and the whole exodus is discussed in detail in Torah and in Hasidus and in many other books. And it's very, very important to our journey 
uh, not just because it was a prerequisite to the original generation of Torah Jews, but because it's a prerequisite to every generation of every Jew. And the Rebbe is, in a sense, bringing Torah close to us and telling us you don't have to negate the personal experience and the personal attraction that each of us has to Torah and certain areas of Torah. Go with it. Love it. However, don't stop there. And experience also the furnace, the killing of Egypt, of, of going beyond limitation and embracing areas in Torah and mitzvahs, which don't necessarily talk to you. And that's how you now graduate from the finite to the infinity. But then in the end, you'll have both. You'll have the truth of Torah. You'll have the real thing, and you'll have it also on a personal level. It will mean something to you. Or like we discussed earlier, you'll do the mitzvahs, which are infinity, which are real, but you'll do them with feeling. Not just your hands are touching infinity, but so is your mind and your heart as well. I want to just point out that if you think about it, you realize that this is the journey of many a Jew. You know, as a shliach, I, I, I get a certain vantage point to see Jews coming, so to speak, from the outside and later on in life in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and what have you, starting to take steps towards Judaism. 70s, 80s, Baruch Hashem, these days, you could say, started to take steps towards Judaism. So I'm, I, I get a bird's eye view, but the truth is it's true with each and every one of us, even the FFVs amongst us. We all have a time in life when we choose to embrace Judaism, and I'm assuming it's, it's probably correct to say that it is a cyclical thing. It is something that is a concentric circle over time as we grow and we, we mature in our relationship with Torah and with Hashem. We have new starts, new beginnings that these journeys will have these three steps. I see it as a shliach, a Jew walks into the Chabad for the first time. What draws him or her into the building? Or to come to the Torah class or the Tanya class? It's like the patriarch service. There's something emotional that's drawing them. There's something intellectual that's drawing them. There's, there's a certain personal fulfillment that they're seeking. It's personal. They're not yet looking for real. Seldom are they looking for real. They're looking for absolute truth. They're looking for fulfillment. Why should they look for real? They don't know real, they know themselves. But they look into the mirror, they see themselves, they feel unfulfilled. They say, how do we fulfill it? How do we refine it? How do we make life more fulfilling? It's personal. But then after attending and observing mitzvahs and learning, etc., there comes a point in that journey where the person says, aha. As we say in Hebrew, nafala simon, the coin drops. And we say, this is not just a nice self-help program to bring us in fulfillment and give us meaning in our lives and, and maybe bring us some added joy. This is actually a truth. When you study Torah, God is studying with him. When you put on film, God is answering, I'm into your breath. This is real stuff. And suddenly they're not interested anymore in that original personal trip of fulfillment. They're, 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 are you kidding me? They're, they're exodus. They're breaking out of limitations. They discover truth. They're saying, wow, this is real stuff. This is priceless. And then they will come phase three where they'll realize that yes, it's true. They came to Mount Sinai. They have to go through Exodus. They found out that Torah is true and priceless and it's not about personal refinement alone. How, and perhaps the, 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 the excessive focus at the beginning of the journey about their personal refinement was childish by comparison to where they're holding now. 
They have a much more mature relationship. There's a real God, there's real mitzvahs. Having said that though, they look back to that quote childish phase. There's something to be said about it because they were moved, they were excited. And now they revisit it, albeit in a mature relationship to Torah, not as something personal alone, but something real. But now they have the real and they personalize it. It's like us post-Sinai. Each of us is told to relive in our journey, perhaps every day, but certainly in our journey, the patriarchs, the personal relationship, Sinai and Exodus, the real, and then making the real personal, integrating mitzvahs into our minds and hearts so that that infinite light is integrated within us. It's not, nothing blocks it. It is totally infinite. It integrates even to a finite being. So I think that's a practical way to observe the message of this sicha, how people often will take these three steps. I don't want to say invariably, but I think it's quite common. And like I said, anybody who's taking a serious journey, it'll start with, with self, with personal growth. It'll then graduate to looking for truth and finding it, so to speak. And then it will be a combination of both where that truth becomes personal, becomes meaningful to me as a person. The Rebbe says that this is true. Also, the way we educate children. That when we start teaching them Torah, we, we start on the level of shot on the literal. So we'll discuss, for example, the great mighty hands of God. And that's how it's translated to the child. It takes many years until the child graduates that and understands the higher levels of Torah. The Midrashic and the, and the mystical, they start understanding God has no hands. It's even a sacrilegious to believe that God has a physical form. And they start understanding that a hand doesn't mean a physical hand, it means power, it means energy. But when the child is starting cheder and learning the chumash on a simple level, the teacher doesn't get involved in that. And the child's not ready for it. The teacher simply says, the mighty hand of God. And the kid envisions all kinds of physical things. And that's considered acceptable. Because as we said before, we want the child to enter into this realm on their childish level. And if we skip that phase and right away in childhood, we say, nah, the Torah didn't write that language in the simple terms of a, a mighty hand. The child would never, as a human being, gain a relationship to God because we're skipping steps. God wants us to take those steps, even though they're childish by comparison to what the child will later be capable of. Just like the patriarch service is insignificant to compare to post-Sinai, but it's not. It's what made it personal. It was then the preparation for it being integrated. Teach the child on their level. Don't skip steps and let them envision God as this big mighty hand. And eventually um, it will lead to the next level of Torah study and the next level and the next level. And that is perfectly fine and it's warranted. Because then when they come to understand Torah and they see God not as a mighty hand, but as a divine energy, it'll be something that they relate to because they came there gradually. And the Rebbe uses this analogy of how we educate a child. And the second illustration as mentioned earlier, how each of us studies Torah, which we're supposed to study Torah starting from the level of as it's called, not for its own sake, Study that which you like and what you enjoy. You must get into it. So these are the two examples the Rebbe gives. Both the child is educated on their level and each of us is encouraged to study Torah on our level 
of pleasure and of enjoyment and of our particular soul's alignment and interest, because that's how it becomes ours. And then as we graduate and start looking at it for its objective truth, we can still then integrate it back to ourselves. I want to just add one more point that I think the Rebbe is making here. Which is not explicit, but it's implicit. Now that is that what is it? What is it? Not only are the baby steps needed to get you to the later steps, but within the baby steps lie the later steps. First point the Rebbe is making is you need the baby steps. You're telling the child God has a big hand. God doesn't have a hand. But you need to do that so the child can relate to it. And ultimately, the child will realize that God's hand means something different. However, the Rebbe then points out that really, even when you tell the kid, the child, that God has a big hand, you're not lying to the kid. Because what does a hand really mean? The deeper meaning of a hand is energy. The child understands the hand is not about the flesh. The, the child can see a piece of meat on a plate and it has no fear or respect for that. That's not a hand. When it respects the hand of God and the way it envisions, you know, it's a big hand as he sees by his father and his teacher, a hand much bigger than his and God's must be much greater. It's not the physical flesh of the teacher. It's not like chicken or meat sitting in the plate. The Rebbe uses the word steak in the sikha. What you, what you respect about your father or teacher's big arm is the energy. So the child is looking at it on a childish level and speaking about hand physical, but really what they're respecting and they're in awe of even at that time in the childish phase is the soul of the hand, which by extension means the godly energy. They just don't know how to put it in those words because they're not so developed. And therefore what the Rebbe is really saying, I think is that even though the lower levels are only a precursor to the higher, but it's really because in essence, they're one and the same. So let's unfold this in all the examples that we gave. Rebbe says it most explicitly in the analogy of a child. You're teaching the child about God. And you're teaching him about God's arm, even though God has no physical form. You need that level of understanding before the child can get to speaking about God in the abstract. But in truth, really, even that is God in the abstract, because what is a hand? A hand is the energy behind it. And therefore, you're not lying to the child. Similarly, in the other illustration the Rebbe gives, that each of us should study Torah. We should initially study Torah, not for its own sake. Study that which you enjoy and appreciate. Study Torah on your level, that you, the way your mind takes it. And later you'll come to the real deeper truths. But the truth is those deeper truths are not disconnected from this. This is not a lie. Because all layers in Torah are connected. Each evolve one out of the other. And therefore, ultimately, the finite level with which you, the entry level that you come into, which the Rebbe and the Sikha is encouraging us to explore fully and to experience fully and not skip it for the sake of touching the divine itself directly in phase one. That human level of personal experience is in its essence really carrying the infinity. The same thing is, you might say that the Rebbe looks at the service of the patriarchs, that even though they were the service of nivroim, of creations, of souls, of, of great human, great Jews, they weren't divinely ordained. 
but within them lie the ultimate truths. And that's where the fathers of our nation. Or to translate it in the personal journey of each of us, which the Sikhok wants each of us to start our journey by being like patriarchs, by experiencing, by loving Yiddishkeit, by feeling connected to it on our own personal level. Each of us, the mitzvahs that talk to us and that move us. That's not just a necessary evil because in the end, Hashem wants us to, to make Judaism personal even after it becomes real, as we said before. But because ultimately the personal is also real. I'm going out a little bit on a limit, but I think this is correct. The personal is also real, just like the shot of the child is also really the so the mystical, because there are layers one upon the other. The personal that we each feel in our journey that draws us in, person, the, the reason the person walked into the Chabaras the first day looking for personal fulfillment. Nothing about truth yet. Where in that really lies truth. Because deep down we all know that fulfillment comes only from truth. And therefore, the journey works. It's an extraordinary message. Ultimately, the takeaway from it is that what that in Judaism we're relating to God. It's a God that's an objective truth. It's not about our feelings. And yet, Hashem wants our feelings in it. And our feelings should be part of that experience. Because ultimately, our feelings and our experiences and our our own personal fulfillment is all an extension of the truth of infinity of Hashem. Thank you.